I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs chapter 3. Look at two verses this evening. Kind of wraps up this particular section of Proverbs 3. If you recall, this broader chapter has focused on uh, training children in the faith. Well, here we have an Old Testament version of a children's catechism. Trust in the Lord, that's faith. Do not lean on your own understanding. Uh, uh, turn from evil, that's repentance. And here uh, we see uh, the great care that our Heavenly Father gives his children. He gives us uh, when we stray. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for the adoption as sons, and we ask that you would help us to consider this great uh, uh, benefit that you have given us, though we might not at times see it as a benefit. Uh, we ask that these things we would receive with joy for the sake of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I think there's a common question that so many of us uh, uh, ask ourselves when we go through uh, times of trouble and crisis. Why is this happening to me? It might be a particular affliction or sorrow it might be a hardship at work it might be a strained relationship or a disastrous medical prognosis perhaps even the death of a loved one I remember a number of years ago reading a really wonderful book by sheldon van alken uh, called a severe mercy and sheldon van alken if you've not read it it's a short book written i think in the late 70s of a man and his wife who ended up going to oxford and became friends with c.s lewis uh, but the first half of the book is really a, something of a biography of Sheldon's uh, uh, blossoming relationship with his wife. His wife's name was Davy. And uh, I, both of them were unbelievers at the time. And they fell for each other and they fell hard. Uh, and their, their love grew and blossomed, but because they were unbelievers, there was something wrong with their love. Uh, Van Alken described it as a, as a pagan love. He called it the shining barrier, is what he and Davy had a name for their particular love, where they vowed that nothing and nobody would get between their love for one another. Of course, Davy ends up becoming a believer in college, and it kind of throws a monkey wrench in the mix, and eventually Sheldon becomes a believer as well. Nevertheless, though they are growing in the faith, this idolatrous love continues. And then halfway through the book, Sheldon's wife dies tragically. And he's left alone asking, why has this happened? And he comes to recognize and wrestle with the idolatry of his own heart. And his friendship with C.S. Lewis, who helped walk him through this situation. As he's left asking, where was God in all this? Why did God allow this? You know, Paul tells us that God works all things together for our good. That does not mean that all things are good. We have to recognize that, that distinction. The Bible is not saying that everything that happens is a good. Rather, that we have a God that is so good, He takes great evils and tunes them 
to our good. God works even the most painful afflictions in our lives to make us look more like His Son. Tonight we'll consider this painful doctrine of discipline. What are we to make of it? How are we to respond in the midst of crisis and times, particularly of what we might call divine chastisement? And how should we see those trials in light of our adoption into the family of God? I'd like to frame this particular passage, this particular sermon under two headings. First, we'll consider the matter of discipline, we'll see in verse 11. And then the matter of delight, we'll see here in verse 12. So discipline and delight. I don't think any of us have ever enjoyed being disciplined by our parents. If you did, might I suggest that there is something seriously wrong with you. Perhaps they weren't disciplining you well enough. I remember in the fourth grade, I ended up getting detention. And on the way home, my dad told me that I was going to get a spanking. And he told me, he said, son, this is going to hurt me a lot worse than it hurts you. And when uh, time comes and I'm to meet him in uh, the bedroom and I see him practicing his, his technique on, on the baseboard, really psychologically building up the event to make the discipline sink in and make an impression. He stops, he says, oh, who am I kidding? This is going to hurt you way worse. He was kidding, by the way, but uh, it worked. I never got in trouble ever again. He disciplined me because he loved me. All right, that's the purpose of discipline, to drive folly far from the child. And it harkens back to the old word for discipline uh, that we considered a few months ago when we started looking at this book, that word being paideia. That, that it, it, it's something that encapsulates not just kind of the negative aspect of discipline, but the, the positive aspect of what is discipline for. It's not just punitive. The purpose is that it sets you on the right path and trajectory. Perhaps if you played a sport in high school or college, consider the first week of spring training for football. I don't think anybody enjoyed waking up early or running till you puked, and then running some more. You acted of line, what does the coach tell you to do? Well, run another 10 laps. Give me 500 bends and thrusts. And the purpose, of course, is course correction. It is to instill discipline into you. It's like attending boot camp. There's a particular purpose. It's to make you a better man. It does not feel good at the time, but that's not the point of discipline. However, we have to remind ourselves that just because it does not feel good does not mean that it is not for our good. And that is really what discipline is, isn't it? It doesn't seem fun. This is not... Um, a trip to a theme park. But it's necessary. And we see in the Bible that the Lord himself treats Israel as he does a child because he calls Israel his beloved son. Think of what the Lord says to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is kind of a summary. I'm only going to read certain segments. I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter at some point this week. But the Lord, in effect, says, I've led you through the wilderness for 40 years. I've done it for a purpose. I've done it to test your pride, to test your heart, to see what is found in it. And I found pride. 
I found unbelief. I found grumbling, complaining, idolatry, sexual immorality, all manner of gross sins. And so the Lord tells Israel, I kept you in the wilderness for 40 years to humble you. It's an exercise in discipline. Still provided for you. You still had manna for food every morning. You still had fresh water flowing from dry rocks miraculously. Your shoes never wore out. Clothes did not deteriorate. You had a cloud to give you shade from the heat and the desert sun. You had a fiery pillar at night to provide you with warmth on those cold, cold nights. Nevertheless, amidst all the provision and care, this was a time of discipline. It was to humble you and to make you fit for the promised land. And that is what our Lord does for us. He disciplines us to make us fit for heaven. Yet as we continue to read of the life of Israel in the wilderness, we find that they continue to buck under the weight of God's chastisement. They continue to grumble and complain. They despised the Lord's discipline. Psalm 95, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. What is the Lord's response to Israel uh, and their complaining and their grumbling in the wilderness? He says, because you have despise my chastisement because you have refused to amend your ways. You will die in the wilderness. And so here Solomon says, do not be like them. Do not despise the Lord's discipline. Painful as it may seem, this is in fact for your good. From our perspective, it doesn't seem like that's the case. I think as parents, for those who are parents here, you, you understand because you yourself are a parent, that, oh, now I'm, I'm starting to grasp a little bit more faithfully, a little bit more fully why it is that the Lord has me go through these trials because He is doing to me the very thing that I am trying to do with my children, to train them up in the way that they should go. That the chastisement does not demonstrate God's hatred for us. Rather, it is actually a badge of His delight and his love in us. It's a great paradox that discipline shows us that God delights in us. Discipline reminds us of God's delight in us and for us. We see that here in verse 12. Does it seem like the answer you'd expect, right? You ask this question, why are all these bad things happening to me? And the answer being, because your heavenly Father loves you. I remember saying that to a buddy of mine in college. He had all sorts of bad things happen. His girlfriend broke up with him. All these things happened. He got fired from work. And we're, we're, we're sitting at, at a restaurant one night uh, at a high top. And he says, what's going on? I said, well, man, the Lord must really love you. He did not expect that answer and fell out of his chair. It was pretty funny. But it's important to note how Solomon begins this particular passage. My son. It's the third or fourth time we've seen Solomon say this here in this chapter. And of course, so far we've been uh, trying to, to think through this somewhat contextually, that here is Solomon speaking to his own son, the Messianic heir, giving him instruction for the path of godliness. But if you were to consult the greatest commentary ever written on this passage, which all of y'all have, it's called Hebrews chapter 12, we find that Solomon is not simply talking about his own son, you have to remember that Scripture is inspired by God. 
Solomon here is the secondary author, but God is the primary author. And so the preacher of Hebrews asks the church this. This is Hebrews chapter 12. He says, have you not forgotten? Of course, he asks them this as they are undergoing so much persecution and turmoil and strife in their own church and community. He says, have you not forgotten the exhortation which addresses you as sons? And then he cites this passage. You have to be reminded that Proverbs was written for all believers. It's not simply historical reference in times past. It's not like reading, uh, you know, um, uh, the ancient Egyptian wisdom literature or some fairy tale, or Aesop's fables, where you go, oh, that's nice. No, this is the Lord speaking to his children. So when you read my son in Proverbs, God is addressing you. All right, Steve, do not despise the Lord's instruction. Jones, do not grow weary when your heavenly Father reprimands you. Gary, God chastens the one whom he loves. This is what's going on here. He's addressing each of us. I'm not calling anybody out for anything uh, negative. I just want us to, to, to think through this. The Lord is addressing you as his own children. He does this, Emma, just as your father delights in you. That's how we're supposed to see this. This is how Hebrews 12 calls us to consider this. What a great privilege this is, that God calls us as sons. It's a privilege, but it's also a great responsibility. Just as earthly fathers discipline their sons and daughters, so our heavenly father disciplines us. I'm going to consider the frightful alternative. You know, my father and mother both disciplined me. What was striking was they would never discipline any of my friends. We go out, have a weekend camping shindig. My friends do something silly. They do something stupid. They don't get in trouble. Who gets in trouble? I get in trouble. My parents don't reprimand them. They don't discipline strangers walking down the street. They only discipline two people on the face of this earth, me and my brother. But it's because they had great affection for me and my brother. There's a special bond there. There's a special relationship where they had uh, not only the authority to do so, but that was their special charge, their entrustment, and their care. And yet if discipline is a mark of God's love for his children, the implication is if you are not being disciplined, then you are not his child. And again, this is what Hebrews 12 says as he comments on this particular passage. If you are without chastisement, of which we are all partakers, the preacher includes himself. He's not just calling out you know, the, the, the one troublemaker in the church. He's saying all of us throughout our lives bear under divine chastisement in a number of ways for a particular purpose, and yet it shows God's love for us. But if you are not suffering under the weight of that chastisement ever, then you are illegitimate. You're without any legal standing uh, before the throne of grace. 
We talk about the benefits of belonging to Christ, justification, adoption, sanctification, and all those other benefits that flow from or accompany our union with Christ, peace of conscience, assurance of salvation. But here we might also add discipline. Doesn't sound like a great benefit package, but it really is because we make that distinction. It does not feel good. It is for our good. Which is worse, to be disciplined now for a little while or to be handed over to God's fiery wrath for all eternity? It's going to be you know, a pinprick now for an inoculation or you suffer the calamities that befall failing to obey the Lord and walk in his ways. This is the great judgment of Romans chapter 1. Three times Romans 1 tells us that the whole human race has exchanged something. It's the terrible exchange. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They exchanged worship for the creator with worship for the creature. They exchanged natural affections with those unnatural affections. And so what does God do? Three times Paul tells us God gave them over to a debased mind, to a depraved heart, to unsanctified affections, where the Lord is in effect saying to the human race, you want it, you can have it. But know this, there will be a final reckoning, even as we heard this morning. Great day of judgment. And on that day, for those who have not found solace in the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be no mercy. There will be no longer any call for amnesty. That's why Paul tells the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians that we, as a church and as a people, as individuals are disciplined, why? So that we may not be condemned along with the world. Judgment first begins with the house of God, First Peter says. We are disciplined as sons so that we might be corrected, so that we might amend our ways, so that when the judgment befalls the whole world, we will not stand condemned with the rest of humanity. So I know these are just two short verses, but we have to ask ourselves, why is this significant? Clearly it's significant for the New Testament church because Hebrews 12 quotes it. We also say that the whole Bible is for the New Testament church, not just the New Testament. But I think there are three particular things that we can draw from this passage and its significance for us today. The main point is being that our adoption into God's family recasts the so-called problem of evil in a whole new light, doesn't it? You see, for the Christian, suffering is not a mark of God's absence. Rather, it is proof of his loving presence. So many people ask that question, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Something along those lines. And they use it to try to prove or deny the existence of God. But here we find that our afflictions are no proof against God's existence. Rather, it's a startling reminder that he is here and he is not silent. 
and that the Lord loves us so much that he will not leave us in our sin. He loves us more than we love our sin, and he loves us so much that he will do what is necessary to remove our sin from us. This leads us to the second point, that the Lord uh, thrusts us into trials in order to test our hearts, but he does not abandon us and leave us to our own devices. Rather, he uses all things for our good to prune us, to purge us, to purify us, so that we might grow in godliness. Right? I do not want anybody here to misunderstand me. I am not saying that everything that befalls us is a direct consequence of our own sins. That is not what the scriptures teach. The point is not for you to walk home and thinking, oh, I remember when I was 15, my puppy was mauled by a bear, therefore I must have done something to deserve it. That is not the point that is given here. Do not walk away thinking this. The goal is not to try to misread every act of providence as a response to particular sins. For us to think, oh, I got some medical diagnosis, I must have done something wrong. That is not what Solomon is saying here. That is not what Scripture is saying here. Rather, the point is this, that our loving Heavenly Father has tailor-made for each of his children a cross. He knows our frailties. He knows our weaknesses. He also knows our pride and our self-righteousness and our sin. And so he so tailor-makes for us a fitted cross to discipline us. And that discipline is going to look like crucifixion. That's what Jesus has promised. If any man wants to be my disciple and come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If he does not do this, he cannot be my disciple. The purpose of our union with Christ is not that we might have a get-out-of-jail-free card to stick in our back pocket for a rainy day, but that because we have set our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, he not only pardons our sin, but he works to rid us of our sinful behavior from the inside out to make us holy, to make us look like Christ, to make us fit for heaven. This is our discipline. Third thing to consider is that Christian discipline is parental. It reminds us that we have a father in heaven. This is something, a, a spiritual exercise equivalent to spring training. What is it that Paul tells Timothy? No man uh, who wants to uh, be faithful to Christ can expect to live apart from suffering, and apart from persecution. Because uh, you love the Son, because the Son loves you, the world will hate you. And so we are disciplined. It's not simply being disciplined for our wrong. It is a discipline. It is a paideia. It is instruction so that we might do what is right. Think of it as somebody learning to play the violin or the piano. You play your scales every day and your arpeggios and you do your music theory and you have your music juries. And sometimes it's not fun practicing for all that but it's for your good to make you a master of the craft. 
And here we are called to be mastered by our Christ, by our Savior, by our Master, so that we might master the art of discipleship. There is no heaven without a cross. Romans 8 tells us that, that we must suffer with Christ in order to be glorified with him, so that if we do not suffer with him, we will not be glorified with him. Such is the path to glory. It is not saying that we are justified by the amount of suffering that we undergo, simply saying that if God has set his mark of affection upon you, you will suffer. You will look like Christ in his estate of humiliation so that you might look like Christ in glory. This discipline is something that all God's children undergo. And Hebrews tells the church that though you may be wearied by such discipline, though it may not be pleasurable and fun, he actually tells this church that is hurting, he says, you have great need for endurance. Because it's through the endurance of bearing under that suffering, bearing under those trials with humility, that, that, that the conforming process takes shape. It is that discipline given for the race that is set before us that we might endure the cross as our Savior has, despising the shame. Just as our Savior said to that lazy church of Laodicea, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. It's very simple. If you learn that you have done wrong according to what Scripture says, repent and amend your ways. Confess your sins, but also turn from your sins. Happy is the man whom the Lord reproves, Job says, the man who pursues holiness and turns from sinfulness. Charles Bridges, who I think has the finest commentary on Proverbs, in my opinion, that I've come across, puts it like this, that there is no communion so close, so endearing, and so fruitful as communion with a chastening God. These are severe mercies. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you that you discipline us. We ask that you would continue your kind discipline, but that you would discipline us in your mercy and not in your wrath. You know our frames, you know what we are able to handle, and you know what we are not. You know when we need a gentle firmness, and you know when we need a firm gentleness. We pray that you would not break us, that in your loving care you would bind up and mend that which has been bruised by sin. We do pray that if our pride is such, that we must be dashed against the rocks to be saved, we ask that you would do so only to make us look more like your Son, that we may be blessed, that you may be praised. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.